Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 47. That was the splat of rotten fruit hitting Heath Ledger's face in A Knight's Tale, a 2001 movie. It's really fun. It's extremely historically inaccurate on purpose. I recommend it. And what you're hearing is an angry medieval mob getting ready to pelt Ledger's character, to yell at him and humiliate him because he's a squire who has been impersonating a knight. We're in trouble. So his friends are all around him trying to give him support, but there's nothing they can do about it. There's nothing he can do about it because his neck and wrists have been lowered into grooves along a wooden plank. And then another plank with grooves going the other way has been locked on top. And so he's trapped. His head and hands can't get out and he's bent over and forced to face the crowd. And this device that he's trapped inside, it's sometimes referred to as the stocks. Someone's in the stocks, but that's actually something else. That's a contraption that just trapped your feet. Ledger in this scene is trapped in something that's actually called a pillory. And you've probably seen them in a million movies or at Renaissance fairs. They usually have the three holes there that you can just slip your head and hands into. But uh, yeah, the real thing, the real thing uh, locked you in. You couldn't get out. So anyway, in this scene, Jeffrey Chaucer, played by Paul Bettany, he makes this great impassioned speech. And then the prince saves Ledger. And well, the plot is, like I said, not all that historically accurate. For I have never seen a heart like the one that beats inside this man. Great it is! Swollen with all the virtues... By the way, you need the Blu-ray to watch this or some other extended edition because this scene was deleted from the theatrical release. And for someone like me, that's awesome. I love movies set in the medieval time period. I love movies set in this era. I love the idea of it. I love the costumes and the swords and the knights and all the other stuff. Even though I know that it's not historically accurate. At least most of the time. Some movies try very hard. Some TV shows try very hard. Some don't, like A Knight's Tale. But no matter what kind of movie it is, what kind of television show it is, if it's set in a medieval time period, you are probably going to see a pillar. But knowing that movies like this take a lot of license with history, I've always wondered, was the pillory actually one of those things you did see every day? Because it seems that way in these movies. And since this is an episode about public shaming, and the pillory is sort of the most iconic example of public shaming, I asked a historian, were they really that popular? I mean, that certainly happened all over Europe. Um, in particular, I mean, a lot of our sort of movie versions of this are sort of comparing to sort of what happened in England. And in England, that was a very sort of common kind of thing for people sort of who transgress social boundaries. That's Courtney Lucard. And the minds of medieval people is sort of her specialty. 
I am a medieval historian, medievalist, so and I work on the early Middle Ages, which is the sort of era of Charlemagne. So and my most of my work is on sort of religion and travel and things like that. Lucard said, at least when it comes to visuals, when it comes to the atmosphere of what it was like to be around a pillory at that time, movies generally get that right. They would be set in a place where people would see, right? Because the point... Trafficked. Yeah, trafficked. So wherever that would be in a community, right? So it might be outside. Um, I mean, but this is something that um, would happen as part of either a sec secular punishment, right? So in a local court uh, or an ecclesiastical court could also set this. So it might be in front of a church, but it might be in front of a courthouse. It might be in front of a... But I mean, the point of it was for the person to be in public, shamed by their community. And so wherever that was going to happen was going to, you know, that's where the, the it would be. So it's true. There were no dragons, but people really did gather in mobs around a member of the community, put them on display, lock them up in a board, and shame them publicly. But where movies tend to split from history is why those people would be punished in that way. Oh, you know, sort of women who were um, sort of... Uh, transgressing sort of sexual boundaries, priests who transgress boundaries. And so this idea of is this sort of a method of social control, right, is what it is. The pillory wasn't a punishment for crimes so much as a strong social deterrent for convincing people they shouldn't go outside the lines of normalcy or what that community considered decent. The possibility of public shaming in this way made it clear to anyone in the mob that they might themselves one day be up there on display and the fear of public ridicule strengthened the sway of norms and taboos. When you are in public being shamed for transgressing sort of the boundary, social boundaries of your community, right, that is certainly a way that people use to sort of control their communities, right? And so that sort of, that these things happening in public rather than happening in private, right? You know, you're not sending someone to prison. You're putting someone in sort of this public forum that says you have transgressed the boundaries of your community. Lucard said it wasn't a punishment for outsiders, but for people you knew, people you grew up with and live with. And though people were mostly illiterate, they would have already learned about your transgression long before you were put on display as the gossip spread from home to home. And of course, afterward, that same community would remember your shaming forever. A public shaming in the pillory wouldn't happen every week, but the fear was always there. So the punishment is that people talk about you or people abuse you, right? Mm -hmm. So there is sort of physical abuse there, could be physical abuse. But if you murdered that person, right, like you would be subject, you you would be transgressing boundaries as well, right? Okay. And so there's the, the point of such a thing is to draw the line about what's acceptable and what's not. Public shaming is a way to police behavior. And it's not just behavior that gets policed. It's a way to police what people actually say and maybe maybe what they think. And I mean, sort of policing speech, right, is absolutely sort of a part of this. I mean, that sort of, um, yeah, policing speech, policing behavior that, I mean, that's, that's part of the sort of human communities and what can you say and what's acceptable mm -hmm. and yeah. And, and what's not allowed and context. Uh, yeah. Context. I mean, and that's one thing that the middle ages has is sort of over the modern world is that like, if you were gossiping about someone, this is like an oral culture. This is not <laughs> happening behind any kind of anonymity, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so you can't, you know, policing someone else's speech. Like, you'd have to say it to their face or behind your neighbor's back, maybe. But, I mean, like, but this is sort of a, a much more intimate setting than 
saying, oh, that person on the internet, isn't she a horrible person, mm-hmm. right? So, because she's so anonymous see. to you and so not a person to you, right? Whereas if your your neighbor says something like that, right, you can either say, well, I know my neighbor, you know, is a racist, and so I know to take it seriously, <laughs> you know, like my little racist lady on the corner, and you know, in the house on the corner, or whatever, or you can say, oh, I know my, you know, neighbor is uh, super sarcastic, and you can put that in context, but, you know, um, but that's sort of uh, people engaging in smaller groups rather than sort of very large Twitter verse or whatever. So Lucart mentions Twitter right there. And maybe at this point, you've already made that same connection. Public shaming is part of human nature, it seems. We have an urge to use it, as Lucart said, to define the boundaries of what we will and will not accept in our cultures, both in words and in actions. We did away with the pillory after the Enlightenment, along with public hangings and other punishments considered too barbaric for civilized people. But it came back again during the colonial period in America. And in a way, it's back now inside Twitter and other social media. That's because technology changes, opportunities appear and disappear. Ideas are adopted while other ideas are retired. But our basic nature is still the same now as it was back then. Well, honestly, this idea, I mean, the people of the past are still people, right? And so they're, you know, they have communities, they have, you know, social boundaries. Those boundaries are different from the ones that we set, just like the ones, you know, the the boundaries that we set are different from the ones that people in China set. But at the same time, like, communities have rules for engagement, right? I mean, that's how, that is sort of uh, how humans get get along in groups. (laughs) So, and so this idea is, it's the same thing in the medieval period or any other period is that people are going to set up those boundaries about how they want the people in their society to behave. So, mm-hmm. and they'll police those boundaries in any way that they, that their community deems appropriate, you know? And so whether it's shaming pe- people on the internet or talking about people and, you know, throwing stuff at them while they're being sort of hung up in a public square, it's, it's, it's a different method, but it's the same human impulse. So public shaming may never go away, but each time it appears, a time seems to finally come in which we realize maybe, maybe we're taking it too far. Maybe we're, we're just not using our powers wisely, our newly handed powers. Maybe we're not being judicious in a way that a court would be judicious. And we're definitely not in a court right now because we've been able to do something that we've never been able to do before. And that is together shame people who we never have met before in mass as strangers to one another, instead of as a tight-knit community that may have been around during medieval times. Now we're in this internet community, which is kind of strange. We're still defining what is and is not acceptable as public speech, what is and is not acceptable as public behavior. We're definitely wondering what is and is not appropriate when it comes to shaming people, the way we do it, how we do it, and how intensely it's done, and what the consequences might be. And that's what we're going to talk about today on the You Are Not So Smart podcast. My name is David McCraney. I will be your host. And on this episode, our guest is John Ronson, author of the new book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, which is all about how we are shaming people today and what happens to those people. In fact, the best part of the book 
is about the actual lives of people who experience the aftermath of a giant public shaming and how they've been destroyed by it. And you'll hear that interview after this word from our sponsor. scientific event in the history of man. Are you building an AI? A24 presenting Ex Machina, a sci-fi thriller directed by the writer of Sunshine and 28 Days Later. The Telegraph calls it bewitchingly smart science fiction, and the Daily Mirror declares it's an instant classic. Starring Oscar Isaac, Domhnall Gleeson, and Alicia Vikander, Ex Machina opens in select theaters in New York and Los Angeles on April 10th, more cities and theaters every week after. Why would it not be? You've never been outside this building. We could go together. Did you program her to flirt with me? Do you think about me? If you lie, I will know. No. Lie. You Are Not So Smart is supported by Wealthfront, the automated investment service that makes it easy to invest your money the right way. It automatically rebalances your portfolio and reinvests your dividends, all commission-free. Wealthfront manages over $2 billion and has saved millions on taxes for its clients. Visit Wealthfront.com slash so smart to get your first $10,000 managed for free. And now we return to our program. Our guest in this episode is John Ronson, whose books include the New York Times bestsellers, The Psychopath Test and Lost at Sea, The John Ronson Mysteries. And his international bestsellers are Them, Adventures with Extremists, and The Men Who Stare at Goats. He's a contributor to This American Life. He is a great storyteller, a great journalist, a great author, and his new book is So You've Been Publicly Shamed, which is really about the people who are on the receiving end of modern public shamings. He goes, he meets them, he talks to them, and he learns how their lives were affected. So let's pick his brain. Um, I, uh, I love this book. I've been a fan of your books for, for a long time, but this one, I don't know. I just read the first half in the first night and then the other half the next morning. And I wrote all over the pages and, um, I thought I was, I thought I was going to use all of that in the interview, but it just ended up being like my own, uh, like madness all throughout it. And it, it, it really feels like at some point the book takes on the form of, um, a person standing in front of a mob and screaming at them to take a look at themselves and ask, what are you doing? And uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and imagine how terrifying it is to be that person doing that. <laughs> Honestly, it's scarier than like getting chased by the Bilderberg Group or being outed as a Jew at a jihad training camp, which both of those things happened to me in my previous book. Yeah, how how, we- um, how weird is that? Yeah. I mean, 
because it's all throughout the book. We are scarier. Yeah. yeah. It's all throughout the book. This, uh, you know, that's that there's like a, a tension in the background that like, um, I, I'm walking into uh, a place where everyone may choose to decide that I'm the person that needs to be attacked, or maybe they will, uh, they'll, um, swat me or something like that. Um, and then you realize in the book that you are in that mob that you are fearful of. And, uh, are you, do you think that was sort of the, is that sort of the intention of the book as you, uh, all these things I've been talking about? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, want, it, I, I wanted to say, I think the thing that was going through my mind most of all in the two or three years I was writing this book was I want people to feel the agony of what it is to be at the end of a shaming campaign orchestrated by us. And when I say us, I think I mean not like, some smattering of trolls, um, but by, you know, the masses, by hundreds of thousands of people. Um, I, I wanted to say, look, this is what it feels like. It's agony. And I wanted people to sort of feel, you know, the pain. It, it, you know, so for, sometimes reading this book feels like kind of watching a horror movie. Um, mm. one, I saw one review where it said it's like a whodunit. Um, and you realize at the end that the people who'd done it were us. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so it's kind of it's 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 kind of anxiety inducing this book, and, and deliberately so. Um, I want maybe maybe like in, with my last book, the psychopath test, uh, my last book, two books actually. Um, I kind of played my anxiety for laughs in a way, but this time around, I wanted people to really feel the anxiety to have it kind of snaking into them. Um, mm-hmm. Because we, you know, because we're powerful now and we're using our power uh, injudiciously, mm-hmm. un- unjudiciously. And it seems it seems like it didn't start that way, though, because you write about how you you used to take part in these shamings and how you personally benefited from one of them. Yeah, um, a number of them. Um, I would quite often shame people. It, it felt, you know, in the early days of social media, it felt really heady. It was kind of weirdly exciting that that you know, suddenly the silenced had had a voice and it was eloquent and it was kind of righteous. And so we could get people. Um, so so there was some, so, you know, we'd get right-wing columnists who made like racist or homophobic columns. And um, I'd get people who I felt had kind of slurred me personally, uh, like this, like these academics who'd set up this John Rumson spam bot and refused to take it down, and it just drives me nuts. And and uh, so I shamed them, and and you know they 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 stopped. And um, yeah, and and but then if you'd asked me back then, how do you think the recipients of my shamings were? I would have said, like all of us, I'd have said, oh, I'm sure they're fine, because we want to destroy people but not feel bad about it. Right. Um, so when that realization came to me, you know, the idea that we were like toddlers crawling towards a gun, I thought, you know, I have to write this book because, you know, we are doing to people the thing that we are most terrified would be done to us. Right. Yeah. And, and uh, that's untenable. Um, so, uh, well, uh, to catch people up who have no idea what we're talking about, if you could just sort of set the stage, tell us what happened to Justine uh, Sacco. Is that how you pronounce her name, Sacco? Uh, I've always said Sacco, but I've never actually in her presence, pronounce the surname. <laughs> so I'm not sure. Um, you, you, you tend not to do that, right? 
Um, right. So, okay, so she was a New York City PR woman with 170 Twitter followers and, you know, kind of slightly brittle Twitter persona. Um, anyway, she was traveling from New York to London to Cape Town for the Christmas holidays a year last Christmas. And, and she tweeted just before getting on the plane, um, the final leg from Heathrow to Cape Town. She tweeted, going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding, I'm white. So mm-hmm. she kind of chuckled and press send and, you know, for half an hour sporadically checked Twitter and got no replies, um, which I don't think surprised her because she only had 170 Twitter followers, so she, like, never got any replies. Mm-hmm. Um, but still felt that sort of sad feeling we all feel when the internet doesn't congratulate us for being funny. Mm-hmm. And, then she right. turned, and then she turned off the phone and slept, you know, got on the plane and slept and woke up 11 hours later. And there was a text from somebody she hadn't spoken to since high school that said, I am so sorry to see what's happening to you. And and she kind of looked a bit (laughs) baffled and, you know, and then her best friend said, you need to find me right away. You are the worldwide number one trending topic on Twitter. Oh, Um, my God. Yeah. Uh, I I just can't imagine the... Just the darkness coming over you at that moment, like you feel your arms getting heavy, and like um, I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead, keep 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 telling the story. Sorry. No, no, no. I I thought I was talking too much. So I wanted you to say something. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but no, one thing I just remembered actually, I didn't put this in the book. But if you typed Justin into into Twitter that night, into Google that night, um, more people were searching for Justine Sacco than for Justin Bieber. Uh, oh, wow. it, in the months before. She um, had 30 Google searches in her name um, in those 10 days between December 20th, 2013 and December 31st. She had 1,220,000 Google searches. Um, and yeah. the, I mean, her, I mean, this, this, this is a, this joke that she made, this is like, I, you know, when I was reading it, I, I would actually, when I, I read your book, um, just the, the weekend after I played cards against humanity with a bunch of my friends. And, yeah. uh, I had the thought that like, this is like something about a cards against humanity. Like, it's obvious that she doesn't mean it. that she's not like, it's, it's obvious sort of, I mean, if you, if you know that she's joking, even if it's a, you know, poorly constructed joke or whatever, it's still obvious that it's like an inside thing that you would say to point at yourself and saying, hmm. Isn't it horrible there are people who th- actually think this or whatever? You know, it seems... Yeah, and there's a tradition, you know, there's a tradition of this. Uh, Colbert Report do it, and um, uh, Randy Newman does it in his songs. You know, short people have got no reason to live. Um, and South Park do it. You know, nobody mistakes Trey Parker for Cartman. Um, right. And, you know, the, the difference, I think, between Justine and... The other three that I just mentioned is that she she wasn't any good at it. You know, she did it really <laughs> badly. But um, still, you know, that's what she was trying to do. So what happened to her? Oh, destroyed. Uh, um, she um, she got um, fired, obviously. Um, while she slept, um, people Twitter users worked out that she was on a plane and oblivious to her destruction. And that became the kind of dominant hilarity. 
Um, so this hashtag started to trend worldwide has Justine landed yet? Because the joke was, oh my God, imagine what it's going to be like when Justine lands and realizes what's happened to her. It's going to be hilarious. People were tweeting things like, you know, I, I'm, I so want to go home and go to bed, but everybody at this bar is so into hashtag has Justine landed yet? Can't look away. And has Justine landed yet? Maybe the best thing that's ever happened to my Friday night. You know, we it was it was unbelievable. So she did land, and obviously her friend Hannah deleted the tweet, and but it was like way too late. People were like, right. "Sorry, Justine Sacco, your tweet lives on forever." Um, yeah. So, so, so what do you think? Fired, fired, but worse than fired. You know, deeply, profoundly traumatized. Is what do you think is? The, I mean, looking, we look at it right now, and we're like, "Oh, why?" Why were you doing this? But what do you think was the motivation for this this mob's behavior? Or, or can we even call them a mob? I mean, mm. what? Why are they saying yeah. the things that they're saying? Why are they taking the effort? I don't. You see, yeah, you are. I, I'm glad that you said that. You're not sure that they could call it a mob. We could call it a mob because I don't think it was a mob. I mean, a mob implies everybody working towards the same, you know, agenda, maybe. Um, but this was a whole mix of different sorts of people. You had trolls saying things like somebody HIV positive should rape this bitch and then we'll discover if her skin colour protects her from AIDS. And then you had like concerned people saying, um, you know, in, in the light of this terrible tweet, I'm going to donate to AIDS Africa, please join me. Um, so, you know, you had this kind of disparate, these disparate groups all uniting to destroy her for, for completely different reasons. Um, Oh God, I forgot your question now. <laughs> no, I mean, what is, what, what is it? It seems though that there is this like, Oh yeah, why? Like a, what was going on? I, yeah, it I, seems like there's something that's more powerful than everyone that's mm. like driving it or something. I mean, you know, there are sort of social scientists, especially from the past, who believe in this idea of group madness, like some virus takes over where people become like uncontrollable. Um, but some some kind of smart other social scientists have kind of debunked that. Um, mm. Because I, actually, when you think about that theory, it's quite right-wing, you know? It's like... Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, for instance, with the London riots. Yeah, I was living in London in 2011 when, when there were these riots. And, um, and the riots were crazy and terrifying. I'd, you know, in my whole life, I've, I've never known anything like it. You know, huge numbers of people like smashing up stores, um, just horrific things, you know. Um, and we were terrified. We sort of got, they were getting closer and closer to our house, well, flat. And um, and we like locked all the doors and we're like watching the TV in horror. And we lived at the top of quite a high hill called Highgate West Hill. It's a very steep hill. Anyway, the rioting fizzled out at the bottom of our hill um, because I don't think anybody wanted to go up the hill. And, <laughs> and that's not like... Um, uncontrollable virus infecting the masses, you know, they'd go up the hill. That did make us, me think that um, there's something different going on to what these social scientists say about people being kind of infected by a virus. Um, and I think, honestly, I think the, 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 the way I, I would define the Justin Sacco thing is that it was just kind of, desperate desire to do good you know here was this woman who represented if you half closed your eyes 
represented like you know white privilege at its worst and everybody wanted to be seen to be like against that um mm-hmm. but it wasn't true in justine's case it was a you know it was this ironic joke you know that wasn't good but that's what it was um so the irony of this i, I think is that it's it was um the it was like hundreds of thousands of people's desperate desire to be empathetic was what compelled them to commit this, you know, incredibly unempathetic act. It's, it feels like, um, you know, when new technology rolls along, you know, it, it, dis- it always disrupts and there's all, there are many writers who talk about it and how it, um, you know, it takes, sometimes it may take a whole generation to just figure out how to use something like a telephone or whatever. Like, like the, I love, I love reading about how people didn't know how to answer the telephone when it first came out. They would like right. pick, they'd, they'd pick it up and go, Ahoy! And things like that. They, <laughs> right. it, like it took a while to figure out hello is a pretty good way to start the conversation. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, Twitter is kind of young and um, I know that's part of it, but uh, this thought, this, so this thought came into mind when I when came to my mind when I was reading the book. And, I, and in journalism schools, like in ethics classes, they commonly teach the students about this sort of hierarchy of, of privacy, a sort of it's like a ladder of public interest. So you decide how vicious or how dogged your pursuit should be when the result might cause harm, like it might unearth private things best left private or put someone on public Mm. display display who's not a public figure or incite anger against them and so on. So like at the very top, you might have the president or Michael Jackson or Charles Manson. Mm. So these are people who are either on the public payroll or they're very famous. They've done something heinous. And so it's usually okay to go after them. And at the very bottom, you have like victims of crimes, children, people being oppressed, people suffering diseases, and it's not okay to go after them. And then between that are the sort of like the gray areas where they give you tests and they say, you know, use your best judgment. And people talk about if you should or shouldn't do things. And you, you, you think about it, you, you, you mull over the decision before you go forward. And it seems to me that we sort of have learned after many years of publishing stories across, you know, different kinds of media that we we should have a professional class of people who thoughtfully sort through that process and provide a sort of safeguard from this behavior. And then Twitter comes along and in addition to other social media, you have a public with no such standards Mm -hmm. and through a sort of cumulative effect, they bypass all of that and they can elevate someone like Justine uh, Sacco from a place of anonymity to like a place where she can't be ignored. And so like uh, what I'm getting to here is that, before this technology, she'd be too low on the public figure ladder to worry about. But now if like a million people tweet about this same person over the same thing, it's like the, the, the mainstream media is obligated to say something about it. It's like Twitter nullifies that part of our journalistic ethics or hacks at it or subs mm. some of the power away from it. What do you think? Yeah, I, I agree with you. And, and um, actually, this is why I always get slightly annoyed when people say, um, oh, you know, just live by the sword, die by the sword. You know, Justin Sacco was using Twitter. She tweeted it out into the world. You know, that's that's the same as, you know, yelling through a bullhorn at uh, uh, Madison Square Garden or whatever. You know, I don't buy any of that because I think Justin could absolutely be forgiven, given that none of her tweets ever had any response at all from anybody that it was her own fault and that, you know, she somehow was responsible for this. She was, you know, she was so, you know, she was in a very small social circle and she, there was no reason why, especially because nothing like, nothing quite as powerful as that had really happened before to anybody. Like, she had no logical reason to suspect what happened would happen. So, and yeah, and then... 
because Twitter is so uniquely powerful, um, everybody else just fell into line. So newspapers felt like they had to write about it in this really cowardly way. That was the other bizarre thing. Like, almost nobody supported Justin Sacco, even though I think lots of people must have worked out what she was trying to say with that joke. Like, mm-hmm. almost no one supported her. And, yeah. Because of the fear, because you, you're afraid... Yeah, th- they'll be next. You're going to be the next. You'll be the next, yeah. Yeah, the bullies took over the school, and everybody was scared. I mean, and, and when I say the bullies, what I effectively mean is, is us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's this other weird thing is that if she had been previously famous, like Michael Vick or Sarah Palin or something, then, like, people could have, like, there would have been this, like, dividing thing that would happen. So there would be um, there would be people who are sort of defending themselves by defending her because they're defending their own feelings or they're justifying their loyalties or fandom or whatever. Because um, in mm. When the, when like you when someone who's already famous gets the shame treatment, then there's always a segment of people who are on the defense. But with somebody like her, there's nothing. It's like everyone that knows her only knows her as the target. Yes, exactly. It's worse than being trolled. Actually, it's like when if you're say, let's say you're a kind of feminist writer, and you're outspoken and you put your head above the parapet, and then you're trolled by kind of ridiculous misogynistic idiots. Um, there's always, you know, you're always going to have a support network, you know, you're always going to have like fellow feminists supporting you, you know, uh, um, you're going to have newspapers supporting you. Um, Justine had nobody, nobody. We, you know, it wasn't smart. It wasn't trolls who, who tore Justine apart. It was, it was everybody. Um, it's, you know, it's more, I suppose my point here is that we are worse than trolls. (laughs) Um, and, and, and you make a point to mm-hmm. and you make a point to say we and us so much because that is like yeah I mean, a few people have the... at me actually for doing that I gave a talk um, in Essex Chelmsford Essex a couple of weeks ago and somebody in the audience said I wish you'd stop using the word we you know I'm not even on Twitter um, <laughs> but I mean what I said to her is when I, is that when I say we I suppose what I mean most of all, I mean a lot of things, but I suppose what I mean most of all is kind of people like me who believe in in social justice, you know, people sort of, you know, who believe in making the world a better place, um, people on social media, just ordinary people on social media, um, you know, my, my, my kind of people. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I... I didn't want to tell the Justine Sacker story because I identified with Justine. I mean, I really like Justine. I'm utterly delighted that my stories helped her life so much. But really, the reason why I felt so compelled to tell that story is because I identified with the people who tore her apart. Right. And you, you talked to a lot. You talk to several people in the book. I mean, she's not the, you talk to many, many people who've been shamed. You talk to people on, on both sides of it and people who are sort of more famous and less famous and so on. But the, but the the thing that gets me about this um the Justine thing is that you mentioned some of the people say really really terrible things at the person yeah um, and nobody went after them and nobody goes after them it's like yeah. um nobody so, they, you're right i mean nobody goes after the somebody hiv positive should rape this bitch and then we'll see if her skin color protects her from aids he got a uh, he got a free pass 
Right. It's far, far worse than the original yeah, tweet. I know. I know. And so, so why does the mob ever turn on itself like that? You think that like no one member of the mob is ever attacked by a fresh mob who then shames the shamer. It, it yeah, seems so like it should. Yeah, it's such it, a good it, point. It, I, I guess everybody was just, I guess we could only hold a certain amount of outrage <laughs> and upright at any one time. Yeah, it's, it, it seems like it would just, the first time it happened, it should loop forever for that point forward. But it just always <laughs> remains focused on one person until it runs out of steam. Yeah, I know. that It's so odd. I mean, you know, uh, uh, as human beings, we are really fucking stupid sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> which is why, um, which is why it's so weird that we're always so surprised when other human beings act stupid. Like Justine did by writing that stupid tweet. It's like we know this about ourselves. We know if we're idiots. <laughs> and so, like, this is a that's a good, uh, I guess, segue into this part. That um, mm-hmm. I mean, okay, like the someone in your in your book, you you quote them as saying that uh, this is a um, a twenty first century town square flogging, and another person. Um, who you interviewed, who began one of these shamings, said he felt like uh, he turned around. He suddenly found himself the head of a pitchfork mob, and yeah. he, when before he had an idealistic view that this was justice and this is how justice worked in the future. But instead of seeming like futuristic or modern, as you point out, it seems um, kind of like a throwback to something we had done away with as as, as a civilized society. Yeah, um, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Well, you're right, and um, the. I think part of the reason why that is is because people don't tend to think about why we did away with it as a civilized society. In fact, there's a bit of a misconception that shame lost its power to shame. It just became like ineffectual. It sort of fizzled out, you know, with the Industrial Revolution because it was kind of ineffectual. But when I went up to the archives in Massachusetts, I didn't find any, any evidence of that. I mean, I, there might have been evidence of that, which I just didn't, didn't come across, but I didn't find any evidence of that. Whereas I found lots of evidence of, you know, the great thinkers of the 18th and 19th centuries saying, we have to stop this. It's like way too brutal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's because it, it is, um, I mean, a lot of the people, you, you find some things in the book where people have done things similarly to some of the people that have been shamed and their punishment is far worse than what we can uh, meet out today. I mean, it's, they couldn't even have fathomed how horrifying it could be for someone. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book was because I just wanted to say, look, what we are doing is profoundly traumatizing. It's like, it's our punishments are like worse than we think mm-hmm. they are. And, right. you know, at least, come to terms with that if you want to carry on doing it. Because my, my feeling, you know, and I don't want to sound like, you know, I don't want to sound heroic here, but, you know, my feeling is that people are basically good people. People are good. And when we think it through, we will realize that um, we don't want to carry on doing this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think there's a way out of it in the short term? You you say in the book, you've sort of looked at it as being, as becoming a a vegetarian, like going off of meat, like I'm going to go off of the shaming thing and not focus on these victimless um, crimes. And mm. um, do you think there's a way out of this behavior for all of us in the short term? Is there something that needs to be done policy wise? Is it just a matter of reading books like this and taking a look at ourselves in the mirror? What do you think? Well, I don't think, um, 
Um, I don't think policy can help because policy can only regulate against like trolls, you know, crazy mm-hmm. trolls. Um, and as I said, it wasn't trolls who who destroyed, you know, the people in my book. It was it was nice, good-hearted people like us who were just trying to do good. So you can't regulate against that. It's unregulatable. And the the only thing that can happen. I hope is that more people come along. You know, I mean, there's me, and this week, um, Monica Lewinsky gave a, a really brilliant TED talk on the same subjects, and um, I think that's what's going to change things when, mm. when more, you know, when that becomes the sort of consensus. Um, right. and, and I think it started actually. I think you know, between you know, Monica's TED talk, I think did really well. I'm gonna, I'm gonna meet her tomorrow, and I'm gonna ask her if we, we can do some work together. Um, and, um, you know, my book and I think it's only when, you know, all this stuff kind of trickles into people's consciousness, people will just maybe just notice that they, they changed without even realizing they changed. Mm -hmm. It's so fascinating to see, um, to see, to see us wrestle with a new technology like this. I remember when Twitter was first came out and it was so nice to sort of be, have this new, um, superpower to see in the minds of strangers mm. uh i always thought it was lovely. so fascinating I mean, you're right we were seeing into the minds of strangers but we weren't negatively judging them were no, we? we just passively we just listened like at a restaurant or something yeah like like democracy <laughs> right <laughs> it was lovely <laughs> and but and then now and then suddenly everybody became police like um do mm. you, you remember the, the the thing recently the blue dress that looked like it could be gold yes Okay, so no, I, it was a blue and black dress that looked like it could have been gold and white. Right. If you're insane. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now, I was like, oh, that's really interesting. This is kind of sort of in my wheelhouse. I'll put this up on my Facebook page. Uh, and so I put one post up. Everybody who went there was like, oh, that's neat. And then the next day, I was like, oh, here's another example. And But the next day, the next post, I got like attacked a lot by my own fans who were like, why are you doing this? Why are you, why are you trying to latch on to something that's going on on the internet just for cheap hits? And it was like, um, I had, re- I had read just recently from that thing, this thing, um, uh, called, uh, attention policing, which is sort of similar to, uh, public shaming, which is after mm-hmm. a certain point, Twitter tells people stop talking about something. It's become too popular. Um, Right. And and it just seems like, right. you know, there was this time when Twitter was this was just listening to people talk about things and going, Oh, that's neat. Even if they were bigots or they thought they were abducted by aliens or whatever, you never really felt an urge to get involved, no matter what people were saying. But now they're on patrol. Every the, you write in the book they're like on patrol for social violations and they have this NSA level power to surveil. Um mm. you, yes. when do yes. you when do you when do you think that happened and what made that happen? Um I mean, I saw lots of little snakes in the Garden of Eden. I mean, one was when newspapers <laughs> started publishing, like, you know, here are the 100 best tweeters that you have to follow. And suddenly this kind of lovely egalitarianism began to die away. You know, it was no longer a level playing field. It became a kind of hierarchy. I think that mm. had something to do with it. And then, yeah, sort of weird, I did notice the kind of self-righteousness creeping in. You know, I don't know whether whether it came at the same time as, as like successful and, you know, more appropriate shaming campaigns. So like if a right-wing columnist wrote something like particularly horrendous, you know, we would mobilize against that person and, 
you know, and it would work. And and I I can't bring myself to be like against that. You know, I remember a pop singer called Stephen Gately died of natural causes, but you know, Daily Mail columnist basically said he died. You know, the coroner may have said natural causes, but you know, believe me, he died because he was gay. I mean, that was basically what what she what she wrote. Um, and it's very hard for me to, you know, you'd have to be pretty sort of Disney to say we shouldn't shame, you know, because shaming's wrong, we shouldn't shame even the Daily Mail for doing that. Um, so we did have some sort of successful shaming campaigns. And I guess that's when a sort of self-righteousness started to creep in. Um, and everybody started looking at everybody else as if they were inherently evil. <laughs> and, and yeah, so instead of looking into other people's minds in this rather lovely um you know, empathetic, mutually learning way, we start looking to everybody else's minds uh, as if, you know, looking for clues to their inherent uh, wickedness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you right, then all these other things started happening, like, um, yeah, you'd be told you can't do that. You know, don't, you, you can't say that. I remember tweeting a few people back then, you know, sorry, I, I didn't realise that you were in charge of Twitter rules. <laughs> but it turned out that they were. <laughs> Yeah, that's it's this the the Wild West aspect of it, the hands off. This is a new country kind of aspect of it. it is it's it's sorting. It's it'll take things like your book to sort to to allow everyone to sort it out because it's not going to be there's not going to be a hand that comes in and pushes people around. It looks like. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, David, I am going to have to go in a sec because I've actually. Got, oh yeah, 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 yeah. I've we only blocked out thirty minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I've got a lunch interview with Salon which I don't want to be late for. You know what they're like. If you're late for Salon, they give you a fuck you we up. Don't want to, we don't want any mean tweets. <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, look, thank you so much for your time. Uh, there's so much more we didn't even discuss. I mean, the book has so much more to offer than just what we talked about just here. So I really hope everybody gets it. Um, is there, if people want to keep up with you, what's the best way to do it? And then we'll, we'll let you go. Twitter, because I still love it. Um, so, well, my website is johnronson.com and there's no H in John, J-O-N-R-O-N-S-O-N.com. And my Twitter handle is John Ronson. And yeah, between the two of those, I'm constantly going on about my work, but also interspersed with funny, less narcissistic um, <laughs> observations. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. This is wonderful to get a chance to talk to you. I really appreciate it. It was really a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. And I, 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 um, I'm, I really enjoyed that conversation a lot. And now, a word from our sponsor. You Are Not So Smart is supported by Wealthfront, the automated investment service that makes it easy to invest your money the right way. Wealthfront software manages your money using investment strategies that were previously only available to the wealthiest investors for just one quarter of the cost of using a traditional advisor. Wealthfront monitors your account 24-7, automatically rebalancing your portfolio, reinvesting dividends, and working to maximize your after-tax returns. Wealthfront is also overseen by a team of investment experts, the same experts who launched the index fund revolution and who've written some of the most important books in finance. In case you're still not convinced, you should know that Wealthfront manages over $2 billion in client assets and has saved millions of dollars on taxes for its clients. 
So with Wealthfront watching over your investments every day, what will you do with all your extra time? Visit Wealthfront.com slash so smart to get your first $10,000 managed for free. Wealthfront Incorporated is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Brokerage services are offered through Wealthfront Brokerage Corporation. Member FINRA and SIPC, this is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities. Investing in securities involves risk, and there is a possibility of losing money. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please visit Wealthfront.com to read their full disclosure. And now we return to our program. This is usually the part of the show where I eat a cookie baked from a recipe sent by a listener or a reader, but that segment will now be moved to the end of the program from now on. So when you hear the cookie segment beginning, the only thing after it will always be the credits. But before that, we'll have different things, and usually we'll be talking about some self-delusion news or a scientific study related to self-delusion, and that's what we're talking about right now. So the self-delusion news that we're going to talk about is this. And, oh boy, this really... This really applies to my life. Have you ever been with a group of friends when someone say they, they ask something like, how long is the Golden Gate Bridge? Or how do they make gasoline? Or um, do mosquito hawks actually eat mosquitoes? And then someone whips out a smartphone and looks up the answer. I hope so because I, I love that. And I'm usually the one who does it. In fact, my wife, Amanda, and I look up the etymology of words all the time. It's very nerdy, I know, but I love it. And all sorts of other stuff. And in a group of friends, I leap to Google when someone asks something like, where did leap year come from and stuff like that. So as great as that is, and I think it is great, new research suggests that there is a downside to having all of the world's knowledge and all of its cat pictures at your fingertips. This uh, comes from a paper, a research paper, and it comes from the press release related to that research paper. The press release comes from Internet searches create illusion of personal knowledge, research finds. That's the headline from the American Psychological Association. You can find this at APA.org. The subhead is inflated sense of personal knowledge may have negative effects, study concludes. So what happened here was in a series of nine experiments, researchers at Yale University discovered that the more people use the Internet to look up things that they don't know, the less they feel they need the Internet to do that in future situations. This research appears in the Journal of Experimental Psychology, and what they did was have people look up the answers to things that most people don't exactly understand, like how does a zipper work? And after they had successfully completed that task, the same participants were asked to rate their ability to answer questions without using the Internet. And one of those questions was, why is it warmer on cloudy nights? So even when the internet user could not find the right answer to the first question, like one of the questions that was in the first round was, why is ancient Kushite history more peaceful than Greek history? So that's kind of a hard thing to figure out by just looking around the internet. But even though that is something they could not find, in the second round, they still reported and rated their abilities to answer the second round of questions as higher than a control group who did not use the internet first. According to the press release, the researchers believe that smartphones exacerbate this feeling, and growing up with the Internet also makes it more likely you will overestimate your knowledge of the world compared to a person who remembers living without Wikipedia and Google. In the actual uh, press release, Matthew Fisher, one of the researchers, says, People must be actively engaged when they read a book or talk to an expert rather than searching the Internet. If you don't know the answer to a question, it's very apparent to you that you don't know, and it takes time and effort to find the answer, he said. Uh, the quote continues, with the Internet, the lines become blurry 
between what you know and what you think you know, end quote. So the takeaway here is not the Internet makes you stupid. That is an argument uh, that is ridiculous and that I wholly do not support. No, the takeaway from this research is that access to the Internet and an understanding that you can look up the answer to anything can cause you to underestimate your ignorance when you imagine yourself in a situation in which you will need to tap only that which is locked in your head. So if you want to learn more about this, go to Internet Searches, Create Illusion of Personal Knowledge Research Finds. It's in the March 31st, 2015 press release from the American Psychological Association, available at apa.org. And I first heard about this from a great uh, article uh, on the Washington Post website that was uh, titled, How the Internet Makes You Think You're Smarter Than You Really Are. What starts with the letter C? Cookie starts with C. Let's think of other things that starts with C. Uh, ah, who cares about other things? C On each episode of the That's You Are Not So Smart podcast, I eat a cookie C. baked from a recipe sent in by a listener or a reader. And if I eat the cookie that is baked from the recipe that you sent in, you will receive a signed copy of the You Are Not So Smart book. So this episode's cookie is unbelievable. I, uh, I, this is, have you know, the, the oatmeal cream pies you can get in the grocery store that you can get in the box made in a factory. I never in my life considered that you could actually just make those, that those came from something that already existed, that those were something that someone said, Hey, I can mass produce those because there are real oatmeal cream pies you can make at home. And we did my wife, Amanda made these oatmeal cream pies. It takes a lot of steps because you have to make the cream and you have to make the pies and, and the pies are like cookies, but they're kind of mushy and they're just, look, this, this comes from Kevin Stafford. He writes in his email that he loves the podcast. He's got it in rotation with everything else. And he says that he tried these cookies for the first time last night and they elicited, this is I'm quoting from his, uh, his, his email and they elicited the kind of nummy noises from me that I have only heard from one other source. Thus, I feel compelled to share them with you. I normally find myself pish-poshing and harumphing at fall-themed foods and beverages. I'm looking at you, pumpkin spice latte, but I happily make an exception for this cookie. So look, I know it's not fall, but when you listen to this, maybe it will be fall. But I know this, when you eat this cookie, it will become fall. We're going to try it right now. First of all, let me tell you what this thing looks like. It is... It is beautiful in a way that cookies rarely can achieve. The uh, The best thing about it, I think, is that it has a, uh, the, the cream in the middle is really speckly and pretty. And then the outside of the cookie has the speckles of oatmeal and everything inside of it. And altogether, the cookie is just glorious and beautiful. And it looks like, it looks like it must be eaten by you right now, no matter who's watching. And so... Let's do that. Here we go. Getting ready. Oh, man. Kevin Stafford. Let's eat this cookie. Pumpkin and apple cider oatmeal cream pie. That's the name of it. Pumpkin and apple cider oatmeal cream pie. Mm, take me to the mountain. Give me all the cream. Oh, my God. This is... Look... It is so moist, uh, so mushy, so creamy, so apple-y and cider-y and pumpkin spice. Oh, there, there's, this is the best cookie I've ever had in my entire life. I mean, 
I thought the cinnamon cardamom cookies were the best, but this is the new rain. This is the new champion. This is the new champion. It's a it's a it's a level. You know how when you watch like maybe a video of someone camping in a place where you can see the the northern lights, like the aurora borealis, the green streaks in the sky, and you're like, I probably I probably will never do that. But that is amazing that there is another level of experience. There are so many experiences in life that I will not have, and I'm so happy someone else is getting to have it. This is that cookie, but I'm telling you, you can, you can cook it, you can bake it, you can have one of those next level experiences. Oh boy. Somewhere, there's a village somewhere on earth that no longer gets to have fall. Like all of their, they, they don't have October, they don't have Thanksgiving, they don't have uh, Halloween anymore because a wizard came and stole it from them with a magic spell and went up to his castle and now he put all of fall into these uh, magical cookies. <laughs> so the young people of the village are getting together and they're they're learning the ways of the of the warriors and the and the spiritual uh, masters so that they can sneak in to the castle and find the cookies right behind the wizard's back and with every bite another day of autumn reappears in town. <laughs> That's what's inside these cookies. Every bite releases all of autumn, an entire day of autumn, explodes into your mouth and flows into your veins. This is an unbelievable cookie that you must make. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay, look, this came from Kevin Stafford. You did it. You have submitted the greatest cookie I've ever had in my entire life. Pumpkin apple cider oatmeal cream pies. The recipe will be available on the Facebook page, on our Pinterest page, on the You Are Not So Smart website at youarenotsosmart.com. And Kevin a signed book is headed your way. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. Head to boingboing.net for more great podcasts like this one. And head to youarenotsosmart.com, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes to listen to all the previous episodes of this podcast. You can find links to everything that I talked about today at youarenotsosmart.com, and you can learn more about both of my books right there. Send your cookie recipes to david at youarenotsosmart.com, and if I bake your cookie, I will send you a signed copy of the book. Follow You Are Not So Smart on Twitter, on Facebook, on Google+. On Twitter, it's at NotSmartBlog. I'm at David McCraney. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. The music beds are by Drew Garraway, Banjo Apocalypse, and... Mogwai. Also, head over to Patreon, pitch in, help make the show bigger and better. Patreon.com slash you are not so smart. <laughs>